What is good, everybody? Yo, I missed y'all. Sorry for missing last week's episode. Uh, I was attending my little sister's high school graduation on the very same night that I record and edit and upload the podcast. And for those in America, uh, I'm sure that you have been attending your fair share of graduations this month. And if you haven't, consider yourself touched by God himself. <laughs> because Okay, real quick, I just want to say, graduation, like graduating is awesome. You know, it's a great accomplishment. But man, having to sit there and wait for what seems like hours, actually it is hours, to hear your person get called is painstakingly boring, at least for me and my family, because we're Williams, so we're at the very end of the line because they go from A to Z, and my sister graduated from the same high school that I did, and we both had around 800 people graduate in our class, and oh my goodness, the amount of sitting and dozing off and waking back up and boredom that I experienced and that I'm sure my sister experienced. It's rough when you have that many people in your class. Maybe for those who have way less people in their class. Maybe it's more (laughs) enjoyable of a time. But anyway, we're getting back into the creation series, and we're kind of hopping straight back into the waters. Last episode, we talked about the waters above the rakia, above the sky, above the heavens, and that was a pretty cool episode. I enjoyed that a lot, and today we're going to be starting, not really diving deep into, but we're going to be starting to look into the waters below the Rakia. But I first wanted to cover the foundational thought that precedes the idea of the chaos waters below the Rakia. This idea of chaotic waters, chaotic non-life-permitting waters, I wanted to first touch on the foundation on on why this is a thought and how not only the biblical authors but also just the ancient people in the near east at this time the way that they viewed the the cosmos and and how chaotic waters played into that and some of you you may know if you're deeper in knowledge about ancient israel's neighbors you know canaan babylon egypt and their cosmology and their mythological views, um, you may have heard about this conception of cosmic chaotic waters. And these are waters that are non-life permitting, and it's personified as unsustained chaos. And they're often depicted as beasts or monsters. And if this sounds weird or silly, uh, stay around for next episode because the, the Bible actually mentions some of these personified chaotic beasts and monsters multiple times when it speaks about chaos waters or disorder and things along those lines. It's actually really interesting. But there is a biblical foundation for this conception of the waters below the heavens being chaotic and disorderly. And a lot of it's actually found in the first lines of Genesis. So today we're going to be talking about this and we're going to try to get a better understanding of what this pre-creation state of the earth looked like in the eyes of ancient Israelites 
and how this will help us better understand the power and role that Yahweh played in bringing about order and life. So, what better place to start than at the beginning? We're going to be reading the first two verses of Genesis again. If you've been following along in this series, we've already unpacked a lot in these first two verses. But let's just go ahead and read through it again and uh, see if we can figure out what's going on at the beginning states of the earth. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So, throughout this whole series so far, we have talked about the importance that words play in our understanding of the Bible. And and better yet, understanding what those words meant in the context that they were written in and what they meant to the authors that were writing them. And a few of these that we can point out is things like heaven, earth, the beginning. You know, we discovered the importance of tracing the cultural connections and conceptions of words like these so that we can distinguish their cultural meaning from our modern way of understanding these words. And like I pointed out, the first one that we looked at in the series was the word earth. And we discovered that the ancient Israelites' view of earth was not that of a planet or a sphere floating in space. But their understanding of the word earth was synonymous with the dry land. And Genesis even straight out says that God called the dry land earth. We also discovered their understanding of the word heaven as referring to the sky, and even more specifically, the rakia, the sky dome, and not an outer space, galaxy-filled universe or a spiritual realm, but the way that heaven was used in Genesis refers to the sky. And the same steps that we took in those episodes to discover the meaning of those words will have to be used again, especially when we talk about this idea of the earth being formless and void. My translation, ESV I read from, says without form and void, that the earth was without form and void. Some other translations, I think most of them, say that the earth was formless and void. Now, this is important to our understanding of Genesis and our understanding of the beginning stages of the earth. And Genesis obviously has been used by many, many people to form their understanding of the very beginning stages of the formation of the earth. Some people, the the whole universe and galaxy, uh, for Israel here, it seems to be pointed more towards the land. But I I just want to take a a moment to maybe make some observations about the meaning of formless and void and maybe how we may understand it. So the question that I think we should ask ourselves is, what do we think about when we think about the earth being formless and void? Well, one option may be this picture of the planet, the whole globe, the earth, not being fully created yet. I mean, it does say it's formless and void. Maybe you picture vast darkness of space with nothing yet there, and this is the imagery of the earth being formless because the earth isn't there yet. And it's void because 
It's just the dark expanse of the universe. And this is the beginning stages when God boops the earth into existence, however we want to say that happens. I mean, that, that could be one way of understanding formless and void. Others may import our scientific theories about the early stages of the earth being just a molten sphere floating in space billions of years ago with no life, no water, no grass, no land. And this is the idea of the earth being formless because there really isn't much of a form to the earth and it's void because, well, there's really not much there other than just molten rock, heat, burning fire. And maybe you think of formless and void in other ways. Those are just the two that immediately popped into my head, and I know that I used to have some of those conceptions about what Genesis 1 was saying uh, a few years ago. But however we may understand the meaning of formless and void, it seems to end up lacking. At least it lacks in the way that the biblical authors meant for these words to be understood. And one thing that we can point out right off the bat is that we are told right after the earth being formless and void that the earth apparently had water covering it because we're told that darkness was over the face of the deep and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there's a lot of questions that could be asked, like how can the earth be formless and void, but there are apparently waters that God's Spirit can hover above? Like, how, how does formless and void work when there's stuff already there that is tangible that God's Spirit is hovering above? And, and these questions will be addressed in a future episode, but for now, I want to discuss two things. One, I want to discuss the actual meaning of formless and void. And the second, and we'll slightly touch on this today, is ancient Israel's conception of a watery, chaotic, pre-creation state of the earth. And also the conception that was shared by their, their cultural neighbors, by their other religions and beliefs and myths and this isn't too far-fetched, because if you remember from last week, when we were talking about the waters, uh, I brought up a few of the ancient um, Mesopotamian and Babylonian creation myths. And both of them depict the earth being in a chaotic, watery state, but for their cosmologies, these various gods had to fight with each other in order to bring about an ordered state. But we're going to focus on these two things today. And the first we're going to focus on is the meaning of formless and void. and void mean? Well, to figure this out, we should probably point out that formless and void is not really the most helpful translation of the Hebrew words that are used. So the phrase formless and void, 
in Hebrew. If you look this up in concordance or a lexicon, you can read along with me. In Hebrew, the words are tohu vavohu. And for some reason, our English translators translate this as formless and void. It's not technically wrong, but the words are not necessarily helpful for us understanding what's going on here. So let's figure out what tohu vavohu means. And instead of just hopping straight into a concordance and just straight up telling you what they mean, which we can do, and you can also look at this, I actually want to go through the usages of these words so that we can get a better understanding of how these words are used in context. So the first example we'll look at is Deuteronomy 32, verse 9 through 10. And we're going to be looking at the first word uh, here, tohu, in Hebrew. It says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Interesting. So this here is describing a, a desolate place. He found him in a desert land. No life, presumably, out in this desert land. And it's not a place where you would want to live. And he also found him in the howling waste of the wilderness. It does not sound like a pleasant situation here. And in this instance, the word waste is the Hebrew word tohu, the same word that's used in Genesis 1 verse 2. So let's look at another example. Uh, here's another example found in Isaiah. And this is speaking about the judgment that God is going to bring upon the earth. It's a very dark picture of the type of judgment that God can bring. It is not fun. But anyway, Isaiah 24, verse 9 through 12 says, No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. So, once again, this is a very dark picture of a destroyed city. And it's described as being desolated and, and wasted. It's laid to waste. And here, I'll, I'll read it again, verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. This is not a pretty picture. This is not a life-permitting picture, and this is definitely not a ordered, structured picture of, of life. And the word wasted here, describing the city being wasted and broken down, it's the same Hebrew word, tohu. Let's look at another example. Once again in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, said, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it as a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Another example of waste being used to, to translate the word tohu. And this is saying that when God created and formed the earth, he did not create it to be waste. He did not create it to be this desolate, non-life-permitting, non-ordered place. But he formed it to be inhabited. He formed it for life. And so tohu here, waste, is being contrasted to life and the ability for it to be inhabited. 
Let's look at another one. Psalm 107, verse 39 through 40. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. So, this is another example. Uh, The word wastes here is the Hebrew word tohu. And this is yet another example of a place that you do not want to be. It's a dark, disordered, chaotic, non-life-permitting place. And this is how tohu is being used here. So we have many examples of the Hebrew word tohu in tohu vavohu, not meaning uh, formless or lacking physical makeup, but rather it, it's being used to mean waste, to describe a disordered and in many cases non-life-permitting state of affairs. And this has led some Hebrew scholars to prefer a more literal translation of Genesis 1 verse 2 to not read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, but to read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was wild and waste. Now, this is a very important distinction because formless and void can indicate a state of nothingness, a state of Maybe not perfection, like God's still kind of working on it and void, you know, meaning, oh, there's really not much there. And we can get some incorrect pictures of what ancient Israelite authors here are, are thinking when they're writing down these passages. But wild and waste indicates a state of disorder a state of, of desolation, a, a state of non-life-permitting, chaotic state of affairs that the earth was in. And as we see, tohu was used multiple times within those contexts that we just read to describe a non-life-permitting, chaotic, disordered state of affairs. And this is crucial to how we understand the state that the earth, or better understood the dry land was in when we read Genesis 1 verse 2 and this fits in perfectly as well with the obstacles that we talked about a few episodes ago that God had to overcome in order for life to be able to attain and those things were darkness and the chaotic waters and, and right here, in just the second verse, we already have front and center these two obstacles. We're told that darkness was over the face of the deep, the deep waters. And those deep waters are described as being wild and waste, as being non-life permitting and chaotic. And so in order for life to attain, God has to overcome those obstacles. And what does this say about the power of God? Especially when we look back to those few examples of the Mesopotamian and the Babylonian creation myths where in order in their mythology for this disordered state of affairs of the earth to be able to find order in life, these gods had to fight. There had to be death and pain and there had to be multiple gods. It wasn't just one god that could do it. But here for Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh is able to see this chaotic, watery, non-life-permitting state of affairs 
And instead of having to fight other gods or bring about death of something else in order to bring life in order, God just simply speaks a word. His spirit hovers over these waters and God speaks a word and instantly, as far as our minds could perceive, these non-life-permitting things of the darkness and the chaotic waters and, and all of that, they get put into their place. And now this state of disorder becomes order. So it was wild and waste. That's a better understanding of tohu vavohu, not formless and void. And it was wild and waste. It was non-life permitting. But what other details does verse 2 give us in describing this pre-creation state of the earth? Well, let's take a quick look at the abyss, or as Hebrew would put it, the tohom. So the earth was wild and waste, and darkness was over the face of the deep. What exactly is the deep here? Well, on a surface level read, we could conclude that the deep is referring to some type of water, because the deep is placed in parallel to the waters at the end of this verse. Remember it said, the darkness was over the face of the deep, and then also the Spirit of God was hovering over those waters. So at the same time that darkness, this obstacle was hovering over the waters, God's spirit was right there with it, about to start bringing order to a chaotic state. But let's look at what the word deep actually means. Let's see what it what it is in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for deep is to home. And like we've been doing this whole time, uh, let's look at a few examples of how Tahom is used and see if we can get a better understanding for what Tahom actually means. So let's look at Job chapter 38, verse 16 through te- uh, 17. God says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? I love this part of Job, and there are so many cool things to look at. But basically, God is answering all of Job's questions and accusations that he's hurling God's way. And God decides to put little old Job in his place and ask him, "Uh, Hey, have you seen what I've seen and done what I've done? Do you know what I know? And have you gone where I've gone? And this is a part of that. And God asks if Job has ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked on the recesses or the most secluded parts of the deep. And the word deep here in Hebrew is tohom, the same word for deep in Genesis 1 verse 2. So I'm just going to read it again and just replace deep with the word tohom. And let's see if we can kind of get some context for what this word means. Once again, God said, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the Tahom? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? So 
here to home is not only being used in parallel to the watery sea, but is being described as its deepest, most recessed, most secluded parts. The, the to home is seems to be being used as this part of the sea that is unreachable. Like it is so far out of human reach that God is pointing this out saying, Hey, Job, uh, have you ever reached the Tahome? Have you ever reached this place so far deep in the deepest recesses of the sea? And obviously the answer is no. Here's another instance. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, this is right after Jonah said, Hey, God, <laughs> bump you, dog. I'm not doing what you say. I'm going to go catch this boat. And we all know what happens after that. And so in verse 5, Jonah is praying, crying out to God in the belly of the fish or the whale or the beast. A lot of different understandings. But he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. This one's so good. So here, Jonah is praying to God while he's in the belly of the fish. And many times, he likens this experience to being in Sheol, or being in the grave, or experiencing death. And here, Jonah says that the waters that he's, that he's in are closing over him in order to kill him. And the deep, or the tahome, surrounded him. But he also adds some more comparable ways of describing the state that he's in. And he talks about himself being so, so deep within the Tahome, within the sea, that he's at the root of the mountains. Now, I, I don't know much about geography and the mountains and all that stuff. I know that they're really tall, but I also know that uh, the mountains go pretty darn deep <laughs> into the ocean. The root of the mountains go pretty deep. And this is where Jonah's saying that he's being taken. And he's using that synonymously with to home. And he also likens it to the pit. To the pit. Likening this to, to death, to the grave. So here, to home is not just referring to just the sea, just some water, but it's referring once again to the deepest points of the waters, the roots of the mountains, or you could call it the pit. So where does this leave us? And better yet, how should this inform our views of what earth was like in Genesis 1 verse 2? Well, next episode... We'll get into the ancient Israelites' cosmology of cosmic chaos waters and that being personified as sea monsters. Uh, I know. Trust me. I know. It sounds crazy, but trust me, it will make sense when we go through it. And it does talk about sea monsters in the Bible. I'll point out multiple places. Your mind will be blown or you'll think it's really weird and creepy. Anyway, for now, let's just let the Bible speak on its own terms, and let's see where it leaves us with all of this information about wild and waste and the Tahome being like this deep abyss. 
And I think where it leaves us is with this picture of Earth, the dry land, being fully engulfed in chaotic, disordered, non-life-permitting waters. Because we're told that the Earth was wild and waste, and as we saw how wild and waste was used throughout the various verses in the Old Testament, that could also be personified as being desolate, non-life-permitting. And we know that the earth was covered with deep waters, waters that darkness was over the surface of. And that was described as being the Tahom. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over the face of the Tahom. And as we just learned, Tahom is not just talking about eh, just kind of some waters, you know, maybe 10 feet. No, no, no. It's talking about the deepest recesses that water can go. And that is what the earth is being described as being covered with. Now, real quick, you may be saying, how can you just make this jump of saying that the land was fully covered in deep, chaotic waters? Well, we will cover this more in a future episode, but let's just look at Genesis 1, verse 9. There's a few other examples we could point out, but we'll just stay in Genesis for now. Let's just look at this. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So if you do a quick read through, through the first two days of Genesis, you will notice that the dry land, the earth, hasn't appeared yet. All we're told is that God separates the day and the night in that he creates the rakia to separate these chaotic waters with the waters above the rakia and the waters below it. But notice what he does at the start of day three. He calls the waters below the sky to gather into one place. And those are the seas, those are the oceans. And he then calls the dry land, the earth, to appear out of that. So here we're, we're given a clear picture that before day three, the earth had not yet appeared. It had not yet come out from under the water. It was fully covered. And it was covered with what was described as wild and waste in this deep abyss of water, the Tahom. And it wasn't until day three that God then calls the dry land to emerge from those waters. And he then separates those waters so they're no longer covering over the land where humans can now live, but they are now being ordered to their respective places where they can serve a function for human life instead of getting in the way of human life. And there are other examples that we will look at in the future regarding this, but for now, that gives us an image of the land, the earth, in Genesis 1 verse 2, being completely submerged in these disordered, chaotic, non-life-permitting waters. Now, to close, I want to leave you with a thought. And I'll let you chew on this for a few weeks before we hop into this and discuss it further. But I want to leave you with this thought. Notice how... Genesis 1 verse 2 
does not tell us how God created the earth to be submerged in water. Just notice how the narrative starts with the earth already being there and already being in this disordered, watery state. Then and only then does God begin his acts of creation. So once again, notice that before God actually starts creating or doing anything, the earth was already there, already personified as this watery, chaotic, disordered, wild and waste mess. And then God starts to create. I'll let you think about that for a few weeks. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. I will catch you all next week.